Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School class. My name is Lori Atkins. And I'm telling you, it's been a minute since I've been up here. Um, probably about a year. We've been uh, very spoiled from COVID. And I'll tell you, I'm equally terrified and happy to be up here. And so we have a kind of a, a close, intimate group today. So we'll have a We'll have a good discussion. Uh, I'm filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings, who right now is up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's at a seminar called the United Healthcare Summit, and he's there with some of America's top doctors and scientists in the areas of pharmaceutical and environmental toxins. They're exploring evidence-based science on some of the most controversial topics we face today in federal and professional organization regulatory oversight and healthcare. Uh, Dr. Jennings spoke yesterday. He gave a talk uh, called COVID and the Manipulation of Your Mind. Uh, that talk has been downloaded and edited by our amazing Dean and is already posted up on our Facebook page. And there's also a link on our website to look at the entire uh, day of, of talks. Yesterday was streamed and recorded, and they're doing talks today. And there's a, a live stream link there as well. Don't look at that until 11. So let's bow our heads and we'll start class today. Father, we invite you here to join us, to guide us, to uh, be in our midst. Um, We pray that as we study the transformation and purification and refinement that can happen from trials and tribulations and extreme heat, um, we pray that we would be bold enough and courageous enough to to seek that out uh, and ask that you would do the work in us that's necessary to see you when you come. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're studying Lesson 5 in our quarterly, In the Crucible with Christ. And the title of this week's lesson is Extreme Heat. Our memory text is from Isaiah 5310. And I wanted to read both verses 10 and 11 from a couple different Bible versions to try to unpack not only what the verses say, but what they mean. This is from the NIV. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the, though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. So what do you, what do you hear when you, when you hear that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer? Strange. Sounds strange. Sounds antithetical, maybe, that the God of love could. Sounds cruel cruel and it sounds like it's the father who is causal who's causing the the crushing and the suffering and that's the verse that's used to support that understanding that god absolutely kill his son absolutely and that's the niv and hopefully you can see perhaps some a certain law lens uh, maybe or some biases that are held by the translators um they may have some preconceived ideas about god's law and his sovereignty, what he's in control of, and that he is causal and inflicting the punishment. But this is not in the Hebrew language. It's an artifact of the translators. 
So let's look at the Good News translation. It says, the Lord says, it was my will that he should suffer. His death was a sacrifice to bring forgiveness. And so he will see his descendants. He will live a long life. Through him, my purpose will succeed. After a life of suffering, he will again have joy. He will know that he did not suffer in vain. My devoted servant, with whom I am pleased, will bear the punishment of many for his sake. I will forgive them. Does I have a different tone? Maybe shifts the focus slightly that it was God's will he should suffer, but it was not God causing the suffering. That's much closer to the truth, I think, uh, as it was God's will for Jesus to procure the remedy and rescue mankind. The, the New King James Version, the first part of the text, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Once again, we're back to a certain law lens that has God enacting to punish his son on the cross. So I wanted to look at the SDA Bible commentary on these passages and see kind of what the point of view from our church is. And the commentary on this passage says, The Lord was not delighted that his servant Messiah should suffer, but rather, in view of the eternal welfare of men and the security of the universe, it was best for him to suffer. It pleased the Lord in the sense that it was the will of the Lord. Only thus could the plan of salvation succeed. The sufferings of Christ were part of the eternal plan. I was really happy and maybe surprised or pleasantly surprised to read that. I think this is correct. It pleased God that Jesus in perfect accord with himself, perfectly revealed the Father and perfectly fulfilled his mission to heal humankind. It's why he was here. God was in Christ, remember, reconciling the world to himself. But how one understands these passages depends entirely upon what law lens you use. So if we use the imperial law lens and believe that God's law works like human law, that there are rules that have to be governed, policed, punished, then there is only one conclusion you can, you can draw from these texts. The law was broken. It was policed. It was evident it was broken. Someone has to be punished. Somebody has to pay the penalty. And God was pleased to inflict that punishment on Jesus in order for Jesus to pay the penalty. So God could resolve his anger and wrath and save mankind. But if you use the true view of God's law, that his laws are design laws, then we realize, yes, the law was broken, but what did it do? It damaged humankind. It put them in a terminal state. They were dead in trespasses and sin. And they would die eternally unless God intervened in Christ to fix the situation. Thus, while God did not enjoy his son's suffering, he was pleased for his son to carry out his mission and save humankind. The only way to do that was to partake of our human nature to confront that human nature, that carnal nature, and destroy it, thus restoring the species human back to God's original idea. 
we've used this analogy in this class before, but it's like a parent who has a child dying of leukemia, but they have another child who's an exact bone marrow match. Would they be pleased for that healthy child to donate their bone marrow and save their sick child? Yes, but doing so would cause suffering to the donor. And while the parents wouldn't enjoy the healthy child suffering, being in pain, they would be pleased with it because of what it accomplished in their terminal child. This is God's position. So we look at Saturday's lesson in the quarterly. It contains a quote by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, And he was writing concerning his grief over the the tragic loss of his wife. He says, Not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. And he puts in parentheses, at least I think. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but rather... So this is what God is really like. You ever thought that? Based on what's going on in your life? Not that your belief in God is shaken. But is this what God's really like? I've thought that in church, in my childhood, when I was taught the traditional penal view My faith in God was never shaken, but I couldn't imagine that that's what God was like or why he would be that way. So this week's teacher's notes indicate one of the major themes or purposes of this week's lesson is to engage us in a profound study of relevant examples of suffering that will help us understand why God allows suffering in our experience. Then it says, the question is, just how hot can it get? How much heat is God willing to risk putting his people through in order to bring about his ultimate purpose of shaping us into the image of his son? I think that's an interesting question. So does God allow suffering in our lives? Yes. Does God cause us to suffer? Does he bring the heat? I think sometimes yes. Why would a loving God, a God who claims to be the very definition of that word, allow his precious children to suffer? How do we understand why bad things happen and why suffering occurs? Yes. Isn't it a natural process of choices that we make and then consequences? I think so. We're going to go through some of those reasons. Have you ever noticed, do you think that some people... Does it look like some people suffer more than others or that the distribution is unequal? I mean, think about some examples. You hear a story about, a, 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 say, a drunk driver hits a 18-year-old that's getting ready to graduate from high school and the, the teenager dies. Drunk isn't even harmed. Why does that happen? Did God kill the teen? What does it mean when he, when he didn't use divine power to save the team? You ever seen two people have cancer? One survives, total remission, cancer-free. The other one 
terminal dies. What does that mean? Did, did God love one, more, one person more than the other? Did one person have more faith maybe than the other? Or had more people praying for them than the other? Have you ever had a critic or a skeptic of God, atheist, bring this up as evidence that there is no God? No way he would allow that. I have. I've had direct conversations with with friends of mine who have no belief in God. And they can't imagine seeing that, that just the heinous things that are happening in the world today, that a God of love could not allow that. He, he must not exist. And it brings to mind the classic argument that was presented by Epicurus, which is also part of my conversation with this friend. And of course, Epicurus said, is God willing to prevent e- a evil, but he's unable to do so? In that case, God is not omnipotent. Is God able to prevent evil, but unwilling to do so? If so, God must be malevolent. Is God both willing and able to prevent evil? If so, why is there evil in the world? He goes on to say, God is either willing to remove evil and cannot, or he can, but he's unwilling, or he's neither willing nor able, or else he's both willing and able. If he is willing and not able, he must be weak, which cannot be affirmed of God. That can't be true. God can't be weak. If he is able and not willing, he must be envious, which is also contrary to the nature of God. It's interesting that he's opining about the nature of God. If he's neither, if he is neither willing nor able, he must be both envious and weak and consequently not be God. If he is both willing and able, the only possibility that agrees with the nature of God is that he's both willing and able. Then where does evil come from? Why does he not eliminate it? How do you answer these questions? Have you ever had these questions posed? If we look at how Martin Luther would answer such a question, Martin Luther said, this is the highest degree of faith to believe God merciful when he saves so few and damns so many, and to believe him righteous when by his own will he makes us necessarily damnable, so that he seems, according to Erasmus, to delight in the torments of the wretched and to be worthy of hatred rather than love. If then I could by any means comprehend how this God can be merciful and just, who displays so much wrath and iniquity, there would be no need of faith. Did you hear that? Luther thinks God is not understandable, cannot be understood. Why should we even try? Faith is believing God is good, even when all the evidence says he's not good. Sadly, this distorted view of God and this distorted view of faith continues to infect Christianity to this day. And many people live with their minds darkened with such beliefs. As we know, the elements that Epicurus and Luther are missing, they don't understand God's law. They don't understand how it functions. They don't understand that it's God's design parameters upon which reality is constructed to operate. They're viewing the entire question 
about suffering through the lens of human law, imperialism. And so for both of them, it's merely a question of power. For Epicurus, if God is good, then he would use his power to impose his will to eradicate evil. And for Luther, God is assumed to be good and to be powerful, and we are to accept on faith and not ask questions. That if he, if he allows suffering, he's sovereign, who are we to question it? So how do you answer the critics? What key truths are foundational to understanding the question of suffering and evil in the world? First, we must God, understand God's designs, his laws, his original intent for life and humanity. And then we must understand the nature and character of sin, what it actually is, what was the problem, and finally the solution for it. All of those who struggle with this do so because on some level, they don't see and understand what is actually happening in reality and are most often trying to understand through a false imposed law lens. So what are God's design laws? Let's do a little review. Give me some. You reap what you sow. The law of sowing and reaping. Good. Law of love. The law of love, the principle of giving that we see in the, the air cycle and the water cycle and the seed cycle. What else? Liberty. The law of liberty. Love can only exist in an atmosphere of freedom. Yes. Uh, let me say this, that... Um, it seems to me like I was kind of surprised here of what uh, C.S. Lewis said. Mm -hmm. It didn't sound like him. Right. But uh, I think there's a deeper meaning behind that, that that's what he was trying to avoid. Yes. Thinking bad about God. Uh, it seems to me like if every day we would count our blessings and see what God has done for us. Right. Then when the time comes, we might be tempted to say, boy, this is sure a mean God, we can look back much yes. easier to the graciousness and the mercy that he has given us. I totally agree. And the, the title of the book that that quote was from, the name of the book is called Grief Observed. So I do think that it was very introspective. He was looking at what he went through in this process of just heartbreaking grief at the loss of his, his spouse of many years and thinking about if if things get as bad as they can get, is that going to cause me to question my God, my faith that I had utmost confidence in at the top of the mountain, but now I'm in the valley and he's still the same. So, yeah, I think that's that's good insight. More design laws. Anyone? Anyone? Law of sin and death. Oh, the law of sin and death. What about the law of worship? Yes. That by beholding, we become changed, that we become like the God that we worship. Law of exertion. It's something to get stronger, it has to be exercised. With these in mind, what was God's original design for humankind? Wasn't it perfection? To live in a, an existence of love and perfection? In harmony with his design laws. So can can robots love? Can computers show affection? No. What's required for love? Freedom. Freedom. He needed free, sentient beings. He wanted their worship. He wanted their love. He wanted their devotion, not automatons. 
And did God create humankind in his image? Wouldn't that include the ability to love? Would that mean genuine freedom? And would being given genuine freedom to also mean that you had freedom to disobey, to reject him, to deviate from God's design? It had to include that possibility. And as we know, it did even up in heaven. This didn't start in the garden. So all suffering, at least on this planet, has its roots in the fact that this planet is out of harmony with God's design and his life-giving presence. The specific reasons why suffering and death occur, there's several. We are experiencing, not enjoying, the concept called entropy. You know what entropy is? It's the slow, gradual decay of order that occurs because we're disconnected from God's constant, full presence and care. It does not feel slow or gradual some days. It feels very rapid. And there's usually a mirror involved. <laughs> so Adam and Eve were told in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge, dying, you will die. This aging and even the sleep death occurs because of the slow decay of entropy. On top of entropy, we are experiencing millennia of genetic defects, mutations, devolution, not evolution, disease. We've got toxins, poisons. Alterations to our environment, changes in nature. Remember, all of nature's groaning under the weight of sin. We've got manufactured chemicals, products, poisons. We've got evil, selfish actions originating in, in humans themselves. Think about Cain killing Abel. We've got evil, selfish actions that are inspired by Satan. He's inspiring some people to hurt others. Think about Judas betraying Christ. Satan and his agencies are affecting nature, causing problems. Think about Job. We've got good people acting to defend and protect. Think about Abraham rescuing Lot. We've got good people who are acting, unsel acting selfishly and doing bad things. Think about David who murdered Uriah. This occurs because sin in people's heart is not yet removed. And you've got people, whether good or evil, that just make mistakes. There's no intent to help or harm. They slip and fall. They have an auto accident because there's ice on the road. Plus, you've got humans. What about humans acting on God's orders that are causing suffering? Think about his instructions to the Israelites. Kill all the people, women, children, animals. Why would he give such orders? So they don't infect the rest of the people. That is the end result. But remember, his original plan was not for them to harm anyone. He wanted to send in the hornets and the pestilence. And make the land so 
icky to live in that the people would move on. They would find more uh, agreeable pasture. They would find better place to, to settle. He didn't want there to be any killing. But if they were going to insist on it because they wanted to look like they served the most powerful God, he insisted that they take it out in one generation so he could at least limit the damage that he knew would be caused by war to one generation. But they they didn't listen, and we still have 4,000-plus years of continual fighting and violence and war that has scarred every generation since in that area. So, yeah, he was acting to protect Lance, cauterize the wound, or he was acting to protect Lance, cauterize, and keep open the avenue for the Messiah. This is also something that caused significant suffering to some folks in the Old Testament. He put people in the grave at the flood, the firstborn of Egypt, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, multiple instances But those folks are all going to arise again to finish the the course of their life. Saturday's lesson, at the bottom of the lesson, it also asks this important question, which I thought was very well stated. Why do you think God is willing to risk being misunderstood by those he wants to know him and love him? How much do you think God is willing to be misunderstood in order to mold you into the image of Christ? Uh, To me, the whole Testament is about him risking being misunderstood for the actions that he was taking. And remember this example of a parent whose child ignores their warnings and continues to play out in the street. So maybe the parent brings the heat, extreme heat in some cases. Is that parent willing to risk being misunderstood by their child? Their child now thinks that the problem or the danger with playing in the traffic is mommy. How much is that parent willing to be misunderstood, to be the bad guy, if doing so keeps their child safe and alive and healthy until they're able to understand the laws of health, the laws of physics, correct. (laughs) The parent is willing to risk almost any level of misunderstanding because it accomplishes their goal. I think God's in this role. So we're supposed to rejoice in suffering, be grateful for trials and tribulations, Bless those who persecute us. Not be surprised when it happens. Turn the other cheek. Exactly. And if this extreme heat indeed purifies our hearts and refines our characters, we've been studying every week this quarter, then rather than passively waiting for it to happen, should we be actually seeking it out? Do we actively going and looking for it? Did Christ, for the joy set before him, seek out extreme heat in the form of persecution? 
suffering, agonizing physical, mental, spiritual ordeal. He went forward without fear because he had trusted God. But it was his mission. Yes. He sought it out, knowing what it would be. So I found these comments that Mrs. White had about Jesus's reaction to Peter when Peter tried to obstruct his mission. Do y'all remember that? When he discouraged Christ from, from going forward to Jerusalem and Jesus told, said, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter loved his Lord, but Jesus did not commend him for manifesting the desire to shield him from suffering. Peter's words were not such as would be a help and solace to Jesus in the great trial before him. They were not in harmony with God's purpose of grace toward a lost world, nor with the lesson of self-sacrifice that Jesus had come to teach by his own example. Peter did not desire to see the cross in the work of Christ. The impression which his words would make was directly opposed to that which Christ desired to make on the minds of his followers. In other words, this was exactly the opposite of what Christ had been trying to teach his disciples during their time with him. The savior was moved to utter one of the sternest rebukes that ever fell from his lips. Satan was trying to discourage Jesus and turn him from his mission. And Peter in his blind love was giving voice to that temptation. The prince of evil was the author of the thought His instigation was behind that impulsive appeal. Let me skip some of this. Through Peter, Satan was again pressing the temptation of Christ, the same temptation that he had tempted Christ with in the wilderness. But the Savior heeded it not. His thought was for his disciple. Satan had interposed between Peter and his master that the heart of the disciple might not be touched at the vision of Christ's humiliation for him. The words of Christ were spoken not to Peter, but to the one who was trying to separate him from his redeemer. Get thee behind me, Satan, no longer interpose between me and my erring servant. Let me come face to face with Peter that I may reveal to him the mystery of my love. It was to Peter a bitter lesson and one which he learned but slowly. Anybody here slow learner? That the path of Christ on earth lay through agony and humiliation. The disciple shrank from fellowship with his Lord in suffering, but in the heat of the furnace fire, extreme heat, some might would say, he was to learn its blessing. Long afterward, when his active form was bowed with the burden of years and labors, he wrote, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, he may be glad also with exceeding joy. Here's where he's saying, Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Don't think you've been singled out. Rejoice. Anybody have trouble rejoicing in those situations? I think what you said about gratitude is, is well stated. It's a, it's a game changer to have that heart 
mind focus on on things you're grateful for. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson highlights Abraham in the crucible. Now, last quarter, late last quarter, lesson eight, we had a lesson that focused on Abraham's promised son and this unfathomable call to sacrifice Isaac on the Mount of Moriah. A sacrifice that perhaps only God himself could understand. In terms of heat, this to me seems maybe the most extreme. Why did God issue such a difficult command? Was it a test for God's understanding? Did he need to know Abraham better? Or was this test for Abraham? Perhaps for Isaac? Perhaps for the onlooking universe? Abraham had already tried to fix, quote unquote, the infertility issue on his own by fathering Ishmael and had demonstrated a lack of faith in God's ability to fulfill his promise. Was this God's way maybe of further purifying Abraham's character, removing those last vestiges of selfishness and self-reliance? One of the founders of our church had this to say about Abraham's experience. Again, the Lord saw fit to test the faith of Abraham by a most fearful trial. If he had endured the first test and had patiently waited for the promise to be fulfilled in Sarah and had not taken Hagar to be his wife, he would not have been subjected to the closest test that was ever required of man. Interesting. She also said God has always tried his people in the furnace of affliction in order to prove them firm and true and purge them from all unrighteousness. After Abraham and his son had borne the severest test that could be opposed upon them, God spoke through his angel unto Abraham. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. This great act of faith, causes the character of Abraham to shine forth with remarkable luster. It forcibly illustrates his perfect confidence in the Lord from whom he withheld nothing, not even his son by promise. What do we think about that? It's no. Yes. When I go through the hard times, the we call them crucibles. <laughs> and I realize, you realize, hey, this is really hard. I think God also allows those times to show us what's really in our heart. And it's up to us to say, yeah, Lord, you're right. You know, I do see this. And maybe I wouldn't have seen it unless you brought this thing on me or allowed this thing to come in my life. And then it's up to me to say, what am I going to do with it? You know, I can't change myself. And only he can. Right. So um, I think the huge thing is just acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. Just acknowledge that, yeah, I see it. Yeah, I see it. And I think that's the process that he's taken, the cleansing process that he's taken us through, um, is just don't deny it. Just right. Admit it. Right. That's right. It's so many, so many people can't admit you know, what <laughs> yeah. God shows them in their heart, yeah. 
And then once that's done, say, you know, I lay it at your feet because I can't do anything about it anyway other than submit Mm -hmm. and ask you to heal this in my heart. But I think what you said, I mean, self-introspection is not... It's not one of my strong suits. And what you said, there's, there's elements of our characters, the search me and see the wicked way within me parts, that are not revealed. Any other way. Any other way. This is the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Is this extreme heat, are these fiery furnaces his opportunities. He has only one goal for us yeah, yeah. for our time on this earth. It's to heal us. Yeah. It's to cleanse us. It's to save us. Do we want that? Or do we want that? Are we willing hanging on? Are we willing to pray? Do whatever right. yeah. is necessary hang on to our perception of our own self rather than acknowledge that it's not too pretty. It's not. I think that's why, I mean, is it Paul that said that the, the law is a, a mirror? Mirrors are tough. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can lie. I can think all day long about... You know, is my nose shiny? No, I think I'm powder. I think my hair's okay. Till you get to the mirror. There's just no, there's no line in the mirror. Yeah, and you see something in your teeth. <laughs> oh, no, All day long, that's been there. Yeah. So, I mean, but I think it, it, it takes an, it's just an adjustment in our mindset. We are super comfortable. I think there are people on this planet who are not as uncomfortable as suffering as we are. Because they do it every day. We are spoiled, rotten, and super comfortable. And, I mean, you hear Tim talk about patients in in his line of work. They want to get better. But they're suffering between now and getting better. And they repeatedly choose the path of least resistance or the path of least pain. And his famous quote, once there's brokenness, there are no pain-free options. We are broken. And the path toward health or healing has some pain in it. Maybe some extreme heat. So like I said, I'm speaking for myself. There's got to be an adjustment in perception of whether trials are, not whether they're hard, of course they're hard, but whether they are damaging or whether they're constructive, whether they're positive or negative, whether they're an imposition or an opportunity. And I'm not there yet. I want to need some help with that one. But if you, again, if you look back in your own experiences, I've got some, I've got some trials, um, sometimes that were the hardest times. I can tell you there's never been more growth or development in me, personally, characterologically, 
I've never felt closer to God, more in tune with him, uh, aware of his presence, close, close, helping me, sustaining me. Um, and the dependence. Total, utter dependence. I mean, there. Yeah, we're also very, I'm very self-sufficient, or I tend toward it, which can be good, but not in a spiritual sense. So yes, the dependence that's not usually there when I literally don't know what to do. Um, I just, I don't think you can get there outside of the crucible. There's just elements that you'll never learn if you haven't been pressed. And sometimes that crucible involves each other. Other yes. members of the community who, in love, hold that mirror up to you. Absolutely. And um, force an issue. Yeah, and I think it's, is it maybe Thursday's lesson, which I don't think we'll get to, um, that talks about, I mean, I don't think it's one of the, I don't necessarily think it's a reason for our suffering, but it's certainly one of the elements where we're promised that it all works for good. And there are, there's just the ability to, to empathize and comfort and help others going through a similar situation that, again, you're not in tune with if you haven't been there and you haven't done it. Um, that doesn't mean you can't help people if you haven't had every one of their experiences. But I know I'm thinking about in, in the time of my divorce, I don't know anything about string theory or quantum physics or things like that, but I can tell you during that that time of trial, it's like I was vibrating in frequency with other people who are experiencing something similar. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know, I don't think that that happens unless you're just in that mode um, and you're able to address and identify with people in the same situations that I think is tough if you if you haven't actually experienced that. So we think that's called a harmonic. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. And what do we do when we're in that situation is we go to our war room. Mm. The only way to fight our battles. It is. I I know that when I was going through my stuff that I would spend multiple hours, you know, in God's word. Yeah. Same. I knew I couldn't get through any of it without his power. Right. And without his grace of dependence on him and leaving it in his hands to work for me. And yeah. he did. And he did work. He does. In fact, and when I think about it, in my case, I was actually praying for him to put people in my path who were familiar with the whole process because I was very ignorant didn't know anybody had been divorced when I got divorced. But not only did he do that, he also put people in my path who were behind me in the process, who I could walk with and let them know at least what I had experienced. So he gave me both sides of that equation, even though I didn't ask for it. But I think that's important. Um, it's the dependence. It's the helplessness, which is so silly because we're always helpless. We just only feel really helpless when we're in the, the pit of the trial. And again, maybe that's part of the opportunity. When God does get to the point and victory is there, you understand better what it says when I'm weaker, 
And he is strong. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. That's the only time we admit our weakness, maybe. So Monday's lesson references wayward Israel. What do y'all think about the story of Hosea? It's a tough one for me. I wonder how we'd counsel Hosea if he were our friend and how what wise choices he was making or not. And what right. He supported God's direction yes. in yeah. our world. What yeah. he had really said to continue. I mean, obviously... I think the story is meant as a parable about God's relationship with Israel and their repeated straying, betrayal, adultery. Um, but that one would be a tough one to act out. For those of us who have acted that out in real life, <laughs> I can tell you... I, I'd, I would have to have some some supernatural assistance on that one, but I mean that's to me that's what it's the the humility and the willingness of Hosea, I think, to be used in that purpose to understand that this was for yeah. some greater object lesson, um, not only for Israel but for the the generations down the road as we talk about the Bible being more than just historic events. Um, But it is a, it's an amazing, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, unbelievably committed picture of God and his, his desire to be Israel's husband, desire to be our husband. And look at his methods. Look at the methods that he used both to reform or discipline and to woo and and draw them back repeatedly. So when we're in the midst of a trial, we risk not recognizing that it's God who is at work. And as we just read down the long list of some of the reasons for suffering, it's not always God at work. There's a bunch of reasons. But we do know that he can be working in whatever it is, whatever the original cause was. So when Israel went through these hard, painful experiences, it might have been hard for them to recognize that their God was actually working for their salvation. Second, even if we understand that it's God at work, we risk misunderstanding God when he is at work. We may recognize that he's at work, but we don't like what he's doing. So while we're feeling hurt or embarrassed or in pain, it's easy to blame God for being cruel, for not intervening or for not caring. But we know that he's always working to renew us through his covenant of love. What about surviving through worship? Tuesday's lesson gives us some insight into Job's situation. And it asks if God is giving permission for Job to suffer, 
then what difference does it make whether God or Satan is personally inflicting that suffering? How can God be righteous and holy when he actively allows Satan to cause Job such pain? Again, is this the the chess player, the uh, puppeteer, where God's up in heaven just manipulating his pawns? Does it make a difference whether it's God or Satan inflicting the suffering? I think it does. What do you mean? So, again, when we look at the origination of the, the situation with Job, where God calls Job to attention because he's perfect and righteous in all his ways, he gives Satan freedom. He doesn't tell him what to do. He knows what he's going to do, but he doesn't tell him what to do. Satan had every opportunity to bless and enrich Job as he did to, to cause him to suffer. And again, we've talked about this in, in these quarters. Suffering and pain is not always to purge dross and refine character. It wasn't in Job's situation. He was already perfect and righteous in all his ways. Did he have more to learn? Yes. Finite being, infinite God. He had more to learn about God, and I think he did. He, had, he got to learn about his friends. Maybe learn something about his spouse. But he learned something about God as well. And like I said, I think it does make a difference in our view of God and his character, who was causing the suffering. I don't know if I could say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Yep. Well, and that's the point in, in Tuesday's lesson about surviving through worship. Instead, Job had options. He could have become bitter and angry, turned his back on God, thought he must be cruel or non-existent if he allowed this to happen. Or we can hang on to God more tightly. Job dealt with the cat catastrophe by staying in God's presence and worshiping him. And asking. He still wanted to find out more about him. He wanted to talk to him. He wanted to draw closer. That was his reaction to the, the suffering. I know, for me, when I go through whatever that suffering is, I have promises that I claim on a regular basis mm -hmm. about who God is and what God does and that he is love and that he's not going to allow me to go through anything that I can't handle. So if I'm going through it, I realize that in some way he mm -hmm. is going to get me through it. But I know that it's that time with him in claiming those promises and trusting him that helps me that gets for me sure. through for sure that gets us through that's true with all of us mm -hmm. it is so the bottom line <clears throat> we live in a broken sinful world in which we were promised that we would have trouble guaranteed that we would have trials and tribulations be hard pressed on every side but not crushed perplexed but not in despair persecuted but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed 
We were also promised that all these things would work together for good, like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap to purify us Levites. So I want to close with a quote from Mrs. White's testimonies to the church that really, I think, explains the whole lesson, I think, could have been this quote. And it speaks to what you talked about, Brenda. Our Heavenly Father sees the hearts of men and he knows their characters better than they themselves know them. He sees that some have susceptibilities and powers which, directed in the right channel, might be used to his glory to aid in the advancement of his work. He puts these persons on trial and in his wise providence brings them into different positions and under a variety of circumstances, testing them that they may reveal what is in their hearts and the weak points in their characters, which have been concealed from their own knowledge. He gives them opportunities to correct these weaknesses, to polish off the rough corners of their natures, and to fit themselves for his service, that when he calls them to action, they will be ready, and that the angels of heaven may unite their labor with human effort, in the work that must be done upon the earth to men whom God designs shall fill responsible positions. He in mercy reveals their hidden defects that they may look within and examine critically the complicated emotions and exercises of their own hearts and detect that which is wrong. Thus they may modify their dispositions and refine their manners The Lord, in his providence, brings men where he can test their moral powers and reveal their motives of action, that they may improve what is right in themselves and put away that which is wrong. God would have his servants become acquainted with the moral machinery of their own hearts. In order to bring this about, he often permits the fire of affliction to assail them that they might become purified. The purification of the people of God cannot be accomplished without their suffering. God permits the fires of affliction to consume the dross, to separate the worthless from the valuable, that the pure metal may shine forth He passes us from one fire to another, testing our true worth. If we cannot bear these trials, what will we do in the time of trouble? If prosperity or adversity discover falseness, pride, and selfishness in our hearts, what shall we do when God tries every man's work as by fire and lays bare the secrets of all hearts? True grace is is willing to be tried. If we are loath to be searched by the Lord, our condition is serious indeed. God is the refiner and purifier of souls. In the heat of the furnace, the dross is separated forever from the true silver and gold of the Christian character. God, Jesus watches the test. He knows what is needed to purify the precious metal that it may reflect the radiance of his divine love. 
God brings his people near him by close testing trials, by showing them their own weakness and inability, and by teaching them to lean upon him as their only help and safeguard. Then his object is accomplished. They are prepared to be used in every emergency to fill important positions of trust and to accomplish the grand purposes for which their powers were given them. God takes men upon trial. He proves them on the right hand and on the left. And thus they are educated, trained, disciplined. Jesus, our Redeemer, man's representative and head, endured this testing process. He suffered more than we will be called upon to suffer. God's work of refining and purifying must go on until his servants are so humbled, so dead to self, that when called into active service, their eye will be single to his glory. He will then accept their efforts. They will not move rashly from impulse. They will not rush on and imperil the Lord's cause, being slaves to temptations and passions and followers of their own carnal minds set on fire by Satan. Oh, how fearfully is the cause of God marred by man's perverse will and unsubdued temper. How much suffering he brings upon himself by following his own headstrong passions. God brings men over the ground again and again, increasing the pressure until perfect humility and a transformation of character Bring them into harmony with Christ and the spirit of heaven, and they are victors over themselves. That's from Testimonies, Volume 4. That's why there's extreme heat. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, give us courage. Give us strength. Give us heat. Make us bold to ask you to bring about this change, this transformation in our lives, regardless of what it takes. Uh, we, we pray your continued blessing on this ministry. We pray that you would continue to open avenues for this message to go forward. We want people to learn about you. We want people to become like you so you can come again. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.